This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by George Pilling, Visalia, California, www.storysales.com. Jude the Obscure, Part 3, at Melchester, Chapter 7. Tidings from Sue a day or two after passed across Jude like a withering blast. Before reading the letter, he was led to suspect that its contents were of a somewhat serious kind by catching sight of the signature, which was in her full name, never used in her correspondence with him since her first note. My dear Jude, I have something to tell you which perhaps you will not be surprised to hear, though certainly it may strike you as being accelerated, as the railway companies say of their trains. Mr. Phillotson and I are to be married quite soon, in three or four weeks. We had intended, as you know, to wait till I had gone through my course of training and obtained my certificate so as to assist him, if necessary, in the teaching. But he generously says he does not see any object in waiting, now that I am not at the training school. It is so good of him, because the awkwardness of my situation has really come about by my fault in getting expelled. Wish me joy. Remember, I say you are too, and you mustn't refuse. Your affectionate cousin, Susanna Florence Mary Bridehead. Jude staggered under the news, could eat no breakfast, and kept on drinking tea because his mouth was so dry. Then presently he went back to his work and laughed the usual bitter laugh of a man so confronted. Everything seemed turning to satire, and yet what could the poor girl do, he asked himself, and felt worse than shedding tears. Oh, Susanna Florence Mary, he said as he worked, you don't know what marriage means. Could it be possible that his announcement of his own marriage had pricked her on to this, just as his visit to her when in liquor may have pricked her on to her engagement? To be sure, there seemed to exist these other insufficient reasons, practical and social, for her decision, but Sue was not a very practical or calculating person, and he was compelled to think that a pique at having his secret sprung upon her had moved her to give way to Phillotson's probable representations, that the best course to prove how unfounded were the suspicions of the school authorities would be to marry him offhand, as in fulfillment of an ordinary engagement. Sue had, in fact, been placed in an awkward corner. Poor Sue. He determined to play the Spartan, to make the best of it, and support her. But he could not write the requested good wishes for a day or two. Meanwhile, there came another note from his impatient little dear. Jude, will you give me away? I have nobody else who could do it so conveniently as you, being the only married relation I have here on the spot, even if my father were friendly enough to be willing, which he isn't. I hope you won't think it a trouble. I have been looking at a marriage service in the prayer book, and it seems to me very humiliating that a giver away should be required at all. According to the ceremony as there printed, my bridegroom chooses me of his own will and pleasure. But I don't choose him. Somebody gives me to him, like a she-ass or a she-goat or any other domestic animal. Bless your exalted views of woman, O churchman. But I forget. I am no longer privileged to tease you. Ever. Susanna Florence Mary Bridehead Jude screwed himself up to a heroic key and replied, My dear Sue, of course I wish you joy, and also of course I will give you away. What I suggest is that as you have no house of your own, you do not marry from your school friends, but from mine. 
It would be more proper, I think, since I am, as you say, the person nearest related to you in this part of the world. I don't see why you sign your letter in such a new and terribly formal way. Surely you care a bit about me still. Ever your affectionate, Jude. What had jarred on him even more than the signature was a little sting he had been silent on. The phrase married relation. What an idiot it made him seem as her lover. If Sue had written that in satire, he could hardly forgive her. If in suffering, ah, that was another thing. His offer of his lodging must have commended itself to Phillotson at any rate, for the schoolmaster sent him a line of warm thanks, accepting the convenience. Sue also thanked him. Jude immediately moved into more commodious quarters, as much to escape the espionage of the suspicious landlady who had been one cause of Sue's unpleasant experience, as for the sake of room. Then Sue wrote to tell him the day fixed for the wedding, and Jude decided, after inquiry, that she should come into residence on the following Saturday, which would allow of a ten days' stay in the city prior to the ceremony, sufficiently representing a nominal residence of fifteen. She arrived by the ten o'clock train on the day aforesaid, Jude not going to meet her at the station by her special request that he should not lose a morning's work and pay, she said, if this were her true reason. But so well by this time did he know Sue that the remembrance of their mutual sensitiveness at emotional crises might, he thought, have weighed with her in this. When he came home to dinner, she had taken possession of her apartment. She lived in the same house with him, but on a different floor, and they saw each other little, an occasional supper being the only meal they took together, when Sue's manner was something like that of a scared child. What she felt he did not know. Their conversation was mechanical, though she did not look pale or ill. Phillotson came frequently, but mostly when Jude was absent. On the morning of the wedding, when Jude had given himself a holiday, Sue and her cousin had breakfast together for the first and last time during this curious interval, in his room, the parlor, which he had hired for the period of Sue's residence. Seeing, as women do, how helpless he was in making the place comfortable, she bustled about. "'What's the matter, Jude?' she said suddenly. He was leaning with his elbows on the table and his chin on his hands, looking into a futurity which seemed to be sketched out on the tablecloth. "'Oh, nothing!' You are father, you know. That's what they call the man who gives you away. Jude could have said, Phillotson's age entitles him to be called that. But he would not annoy her by such a cheap retort. She talked incessantly as if she dreaded his indulgence in reflection. And before the meal was over, both he and she wished they had not put such confidence in their new view of things, and had taken breakfast apart. What oppressed Jude was the thought that, having done a wrong thing of this sort himself, he was aiding and abetting the woman he loved in doing a like wrong thing, instead of imploring and warning her against it. It was on his tongue to say, You have quite made up your mind? After breakfast, they went out on an errand together, moved by a mutual thought that it was the last opportunity they would have of indulging in unceremonious companionship. By the irony of fate, and the curious trick in Sue's nature of tempting providence at certain times, she took his arm as they walked through the muddy street, a thing she had never done before in her life, and on turning the corner they found themselves close to a grey perpendicular church with a low-pitched roof, the Church of St. Thomas. That's the church, said Jude. Where I'm going to be married? Yes. Indeed, she exclaimed with curiosity. How I should like to go in and see what the spot is like where I am so soon to kneel and do it. Again, he said to himself, she does not realize what marriage means. He passively acquiesced in her wish to go in, and they entered by the western door. 
The only person inside the gloomy building was a charwoman cleaning. Sue held Jude's arm, almost as if she loved him. Cruelly sweet, indeed, she had been to him that morning, but his thoughts of a penance in store for her were tempered by an ache. I can find no way how a blow should fall such as falls on men, nor prove too much for your womanhood. They strolled undemonstratively up the nave towards the altar railing, which they stood against in silence, turning then and walking down the nave again, her hand still on his arm, precisely like a couple just married. The too suggestive incident, entirely of her making, nearly broke down Jude. I like to do things like this she said in the delicate voice of an epicure in emotions, which left no doubt that she spoke the truth. I know you do, said Jude. They are interesting, because they have probably never been done before. I shall walk down the church like this with my husband in about two hours, shan't I? No doubt you will. Was it like this when you were married? Good God, Sue, don't be so awfully merciless. There, dear one, I didn't mean it. Ah, oh, you are vexed she said regretfully as she blinked away an excess of eye moisture. And I promise never to vex you. I suppose I ought not to have asked you to bring me in here. Oh, I oughtn't. I see it now. My curiosity to hunt up a new sensation always leads me into these scrapes. Forgive me. You will, won't you, Jude? The appeal was so remorseful that Jude's eyes were even wetter than hers as he pressed her hand for yes. Now we'll hurry away and I won't do it any more, she continued humbly, and they came out of the building. Sue intending to go to the station to meet Phillotson. But the first person they encountered on entering the main street was the schoolmaster himself, whose train had arrived sooner than Sue expected. There was nothing really to demur to in her leaning on Jude's arm, but she withdrew her hand, and Jude thought that Phillotson had looked surprised. "'We have been doing such a funny thing,' said she, smiling candidly. "'We've been to the church, rehearsing, as it were, haven't we, Jude?' "'How?' said Phillotson curiously. Jude inwardly deplored what he thought to be unnecessary frankness, but she had gone too far not to explain all, which she accordingly did, telling him how they had marched up to the altar. Seeing how puzzled Phillotson seemed, Jude said as cheerfully as he could, I'm going to buy her another little present. Will you both come to shop with me? No, said Sue. I'll go on to the house with him, and requesting her lover not to be a long time, departed with the schoolmaster. Jude soon joined them at his rooms and shortly after they prepared for the ceremony. Phillotson's hair was brushed to a painful extent, and his shirt collar appeared stiffer than it had been for the previous twenty years. Beyond this he looked dignified and thoughtful, and altogether a man of whom it was not unsafe to predict that he would make a kind and considerate husband. That he adored Sue was obvious, and she could almost be seen to feel that she was undeserving in his adoration. Although the distance was so short, he had hired a fly from the Red Lion, and six or seven women and children had gathered by the door when they came out. The schoolmaster and Sue were unknown, though Jude was getting to be recognized as a citizen, and the couple were judged to be some relations of his from a distance, nobody supposing Sue to have been a recent pupil at the training school. In the carriage, Jude took from his pocket his extra little wedding present, which turned out to be two or three yards of white tulle, which he threw over her bonnet and all. As a veil. It looks so odd over a bonnet, she said. I'll take the bonnet off. Oh, no, let it stay, said Phillotson, and she obeyed. When they had passed up the church and were standing in their places, Jude found that the antecedent visit had certainly taken off the edge of this performance, 
but by the time they were halfway on with the service, he wished from his heart that he had not undertaken the business of giving her away. How could Sue have had the temerity to ask him to do it? A cruelty, possibly to herself as well as to him. Women were different from men in such matters. Was it that they were, instead of more sensitive as reputed, more callous and less romantic? Or were they more heroic? Or was Sue simply so perverse that she willfully gave herself and him pain for the odd and mournful luxury of practicing long-suffering in her own person, and of being touched with tender pity for him at having made him practice it? He could perceive that her face was nervously set, and when they reached the trying ordeal of Jude giving her to Phillotson, she could hardly command herself. Rather, however, as it seemed from her knowledge of what her cousin must feel, whom she need not have had there at all, than from self-consideration. Possibly she would go on inflicting such pains again and again, and grieving for the sufferer again and again, in all her colossal inconsistency. Phillotson seemed not to notice, to be surrounded by a mist which prevented his seeing the emotions of others. As soon as they had signed their names and come away, and the suspense was over, Jude felt relieved. The meal at his lodging was a very simple affair, and at two o'clock they went off. In crossing the pavement to the fly, she looked back, and there was a frightened light in her eyes. Could it be that Sue had acted with such unusual foolishness as to plunge into she knew not what for the sake of asserting her independence of him, of retaliating on him for his secrecy? Perhaps Sue was thus venturesome with men because she was childishly ignorant of that side of their natures which wore out women's hearts and lives. When her foot was on the carriage step, she turned round, saying that she'd forgotten something. Jude and the landlady offered to get it. No, she said, running back. It is my handkerchief. I know where I left it. Jude followed her back. She had found it and came holding it in her hand. She looked into his eyes with her own tearful ones, and her lips suddenly parted as if she were going to avow something. But she went on, and whatever she had meant to say remained unspoken. End of Part 3, Chapter 7, Jude the Obscure